Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Sari Concepcion, Justin Barrett, thank you guys for joining me today. This is part episode, part reunion of friends, isn't it? I first met you guys through the grant project that we are sort of talking about today that's now mostly wrapped up. I've referred to it before as the Theopsych uh, seminar or conference. I've also referred to it as that thing at Fuller Seminary that we did. This is that thing. If you've heard me mention that, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Justin Barrett, you are the psychologist who was sort of the um, at the helm of this three-plus-year grant through the John Templeton Foundation. Sari, you are – I don't know how to describe your role in it. What would you – how would you describe it? Well, I'm the director of communications for Blueprint, which is now Justin's – Affiliation and uh, Blueprint 1543. So yeah. I would say I just take a communications broad, communications and media development role on, on all our projects, including Theopsych. Well, and that's how I met you. So you brought, for instance, Trip Fuller and myself into, there were three of these uh, conferences that you guys ran down at Fuller mm -hmm. in consecutive summers and winters. And you brought Trip and I in as media people, right? We are not I was not a, a researcher yet at all, and I'm still not a psychologist, but I was a media personality, and so was Trip, and so we got to hang out. Actually, that's the first time that Trip and I met in person uh, was thanks to you. But what we're here to talk about with the two of you is sort of what went on and what did you learn through three plus years of putting psychological science in conversation with theological inquiry? Uh, it's definitely the kind of thing that people are into who listen to this podcast, which makes sense because it is right at the nexus of my interests as well. So let's see. Let's start with you, Justin. You guys released this this primer, which is essentially it's not just the findings. It's more like a resource for people who are wanting to engage this overlap of psychology and theology, psych science and theology super helpful. Is that like the kind of thing that people can just read or is it you have to purchase it? 
uh, it's available for free on our website. Uh, you can actually, if you, the, the short way to do it is go to theopsych.com and there's a free download link on that page for a digital copy of the book. Uh, it's also available for purchase on any online retailer you could think of. So if you want to support our work by throwing us a little cash and purchasing it, you can, but you absolutely don't have to. It's available yeah. for free. Like if you're choosing, for instance, to like support the Patreon or get a copy of the, you know, if you have a really tough <laughs> ethical financial choice to make. No, I'm kidding. But the link to Theocyc will be in the, the show notes. So, all right, Justin, you were at the helm of this thing. Maybe the first question is just, what made you want to apply for this grant project? What made you want to do it in the first place? Um, we were approached to host uh, a project in this area. For years, the John Templeton Foundation has been interested in promoting what they call science-engaged theology. And I think through the years of various kinds of programs they were doing, there was a rec growing recognition that in some ways, the areas, areas of the sciences that are easiest uh, for theologians to engage in a really productive, full-bodied way seem to be psychological science and other related human sciences. Okay, so it feels like there's low-hanging fruit there. And a need for theologians then to be introduced to psychological science in a way that made sense to them. And so the John Templeton Foundation approached me and suggested, hey, why don't you and your team then at Fuller put together some kind of a program in this area where, where you know, you can help theologians get to know what psychological science is about and how it might be useful to uh, theologians doing their work, pr primarily as academic theologians at seminaries or in divinity schools and that sort of things. So part at the beginning of the primer of the book, you know, four reasons that it might be helpful for a theologian to be aware of the best available psychological science evidence. And, you know, we might tend to think that like, well, especially the layperson might think theology is speculative. It sort of takes place within its own world. Like if you're making a claim about the character of God, what does that have to do with somebody measuring response times in a psych lab, you know, or, or whatever. But you guys have come up with some very compelling examples where theologians are actually engaging psychological realities or claims whether or not they are aware that they are doing it. And in those cases, it would be good to know, well, what does the science say? What's the what's our best sense of it at the moment anyway? So let's go through each of those four briefly, because I think that they're kind of helpful for getting our heads around this. And the first one is if a theologian or any other person sort of working in, in religion, you know, making arguments in the world of religion, if they're making descriptive psychological claims, what's an example of, of one of those claims? You know, uh, Pope John Paul II in one of his encyclicals writes about, uh, let's see, the quote is, in the far reaches of the human heart, there is a seed of desire and nostalgia for God. Hmm. Well, he's, it's in the context of doing theology, but he's making a claim about, well, what's in human hearts, uh, this right. desire and nostalgia for God. And he's not the only one who's made that sort of claim. Uh, John Calvin said something similar about, you know, we have implanted in all of us a sense of the divine, a sensus divinitatis. And then he goes on to unpack some of this. So it's not uncommon to see theologians making claims, especially about human thought processes, emotions, desires, yeah. yearnings, and so forth. And then take it and f taking it for granted that their intuitions on this or the writings of, you know, authoritative figures uh, should be taken at face value. Instead of saying, well, is that right? Um, what evidence do we have that in the far reaches of the human heart, there really is a seed of desire and nostalgia for God? What would that look like? Can we measure that? Well, and one of the things that comes up in, in your work, I'm thinking of your book, Born Believers, and the work of other scientists who, for instance, focus on uh, babies, right? Infants and sort of what are some of the early faculties that children develop I don't know if you were motivated by Calvin and Pope Pope John Paul II or or whatever, but what what are some of the findings from that research that might point to some of these sort of natural capacities empirically that we can measure that human beings end up having uh, as opposed to other organisms? 
So there are a number of findings that those of us working in cognitive science and religion draw upon, at least gesture towards something a little bit like a readiness or a natural receptivity to uh, belief in something like God or um, so we see in early childhood development, for instance, a tendency to already be thinking of things in the world as having purposes and maybe some kind of design behind them. So uh, Deb Kellerman in her work uh, that she calls uh, promiscuous teleology or, you know, uh, teleofunctional reasoning, big mouthful words. Um, I like shows, promiscuous teleology more. Personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> she kind of backed off on that one a little bit later, but it is. It really gets your attention. You're like, it does, and, it, and it captures the right connotation because her point with that term was kids seem to use their teleological thinking, that is thinking about things as having design and purpose, sort of uh, yeah. a little less discriminately than maybe their parents would approve of, their, you know, and they kind of use it here and there, maybe a little recklessly. Um, <laughs> so they look around at mountains and rivers and things, and they naturally think, it seems, well, what's it for? Uh, what's, you know, uh, why is it here? And then they come up with purposes and they're attracted to those purpose kinds of explanations of things in the natural world and not just mountains and rivers, but why is, you know, an elephant's trunk long or whatever it is. One of the things I remember from the conference is if you have a flat rock, you know, which we know is flat because of erosion, time, you know, what, whatever, these sort of geological forces. If you ask kids why it's flat, they will tend to tell you, oh, it's flat so animals can sit on it. So that's like so that it is flat for a reason, right? It's not for a purpose. It is. It doesn't just happen to be flat because of some causes, or they, you know, a kid could say, "Well, it just is that way." But that's just not what kids tend to say. That's interesting. That's right. That's right. In fact, if you give them those kinds of options, they'll generally opt for, no, I want the one that has sort of uh, a purposeful kind of meaning behind it. Yeah. And kids also readily attach purpose then with someone purposed it. Someone brought about that purpose. Someone intended it. Kellerman and her collaborators, uh, like Elisa Yarnefeld, have even shown that these tendencies, and they're not just in childhood, they continue to persist into adulthood, even in strongly atheistic, naturalistic kinds of contexts and among scientists. If you sort of force people to answer some of these questions very quickly, they show that they really are naturally attracted to, no, there's design purpose and intention behind features of the natural world. So that seems to be part of our cognitive equipment that then would at least lean us, tilt us a little bit toward you know, being receptive to this idea of gods are doing stuff in nature for a reason. They're out there. Yeah. And we can multiply out some of these kinds of examples. Like uh, it also appears that by nature, just by ordinary development, we tend to think that there's a part of ourselves that's separable from our physical self. At least one part, if not multiple parts. But there's yeah. something – we are more than just our bodies for sure is our strong intuition – that we go through life with. Well, then it's not hard to think about separating ourselves from our bodies. And so then you can immediately start thinking about ghosts and spirits that are not embodied, at least in the usual sense. And these are the messed up experiments where they ask kids about a dead mouse and they're like, is the dead mouse still hungry? Does the dead mouse miss its mommy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, those Jesse Baring studies of murdered gotcha. mice uh, yeah. gobbled oh, up by man. alligators. <laughs> oh, he's got some really great ones. I mean, Jesse, in, in, a, in addition to those, he's got the Princess Alice studies where he convinces children that there's an invincible, invisible princess in the room who is watching you and things like that. And kids pick up on this stuff right away. So he's really managed to show a natural sort of eager receptivity in kids to you know, invisible beings, um, those yeah. being invisible yeah, beings being interested in our behaviors. And he is. Well, that's, I was just going to say, you know, it doesn't, some people might be getting a little squeamish people, maybe toward the agnostic side of the listenership about this stuff. But it's like, what we're saying is, you know, if Pope John Paul is saying we have a census divinitatis, you're saying you could translate that into an empirical claim. Human beings have a tendency to believe in God or gods, and then you can show that. Now, that doesn't mean that God or the gods exist, but if you are constructing a larger argument and that is a part of the argument, well, here's some evidence for that part of the argument. It might be that we have to learn atheism and we ought to learn atheism. That might be the case. 
but it's interesting and worth noting that we have to learn it, that it doesn't come as naturally. Uh, and that could have all kinds of consequences for educational curricula. I mean, it could, that could be very widely applied and it's good to know it. That's cool. No, that's right. That's a good way to do it. There's, there's a common assumption, I think, that we have that somehow atheism is the, the background, the blank canvas. And then you mm -hmm. sort of have to add religions on top of that. And if anything, I think what's coming out of cognitive science of religion is the, you know, as Pascal Boyer put it, that sort of religious thought is the conceptual path of least resistance. Actually, yeah. we have a natural predilection towards some kinds of religious beliefs. And atheism has to sort of deal with that as sort of the background conditions. Uh, even though there's a lot of disagreement over the details, there are plenty of people who think that there's substantial evidence that they're uh, part of our just ordinary natural psychological equipment makes us think that there are certain things that are just right and wrong and they're not arbitrary. Uh, they tend to cluster right. around certain kinds of themes, and those are just by virtue of being human. Now, there's plenty of room for a cultural environment to elaborate those, to uh, right. tamp down some of those intuitions and say, no, 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 those don't, don't follow those. They're misleading or whatever it is. But yeah. they're there in the background. So you're right. There is an analogy there. Um, and guys like Hobbes and, you know, a lot of the uh, thinkers of the uh, 17th, 18th, and even in the early 19th century, uh, they, they, were, they all presumed, a, at least many of them presumed a certain kind of what we sometimes call a psychic unity. That is, by virtue of being human beings, we have common equipment, intuitions, and so forth. What they didn't do, but what contemporary thinkers do is attach that to an evolutionary history that helps us better discern that and then try to sort of substantiate that through cross-cultural and developmental sort of research. Um, you talked a lot about like something like hyperactive agency detection, Justin, where I see the evolutionary benefit of a function of our, you know, cognitive architecture like that, where, you know, it's safer to assume there's an agent around that may be dangerous, you know? Right. So the promiscuous teleology, what could be the evolutionary advantage yeah, it's a good question. I'm not aware that there's any consensus on that. There are a few, okay. we could think of a few different ways in which it might be. Well, it would, once you have other humans around there, then it certainly could be advantageous because this pointy thing could have been set by another human. When it's just other animals, it's harder to see how that would be beneficial, right? So I remember there's this, you know, one of these great scenes in Disney's Tarzan because I love a good sort of training Phil, montage. Phil Collins song? Yeah, and the, and, the, and the soundtrack is amazing. Yeah, so it's in the Son of Man. Okay, but training, kind of seriously though, training montages, I've been watching all the Rocky films during COVID and like just perfected the training montage. And it, it gets me every time. Yeah, so Tarzan absolutely. has one too. Okay. So, so Tarzan and, you know, young Tarzan sees a rhinoceros sharpening its sort of horn on a tree. And the next thing we see is him lashing a stone shaped very similarly to a stick. So for me, that's sort of, uh, huh. it's a nice mnemonic for, well, one way in which this could be adaptive is if we can see what things are for or potentially for in the natural world around us, they enable us to make all kinds of useful artifacts. And so they could have been a factor that then ratchet us up. Right, like our it expands ability. our imagination about the possibility. Yeah, right. and made us better tool cool. users. This whole conversation has been a good example of, okay, if someone makes a, quote, theological claim, like people naturally yearn for God. People who sit and think about that and go, hmm, are there empirical ways of, like, phrasing that and testing it? Uh, hell yeah. Apparently there are a number of them that can lead to really interesting lines of inquiry that can have other benefits beyond theology, right? So we're talking about moral theory. We're talking about uh, childhood development, right? Like, so following these pathways can be very beneficial, even outside of the realm of religion. Number two, another instance where it would be helpful for a theologian to be aware of the best available psych science, if they are making normative claims, that is claims about how we ought to be, ought to live, ought to interact with God or each other, that are supported by psychological claims. What's an example of this? Yeah, the idea here is theologians like to say things like, oh, well, we ought to live such and such a way because it has uh, this and that consequences, for instance. But the this and that consequences often are the kinds of things that we can empirically investigate using relevant sciences. So one of the examples I give, Richard Swinburne, famous Christian philosopher stroke theologian, 
his book is called What Was Jesus God, which is a fun, punchy little book. He has a section called Christian Moral Teaching, and he has an argument about, for instance, uh, you know, why you should save sex until you're in marriage, why that oh, normative yeah. claim is sort of developed. And he makes the he suggests, well, it's plausible to suppose that if people get used to having casual sex before marriage, I'm quoting here, it becomes more natural to commit adultery when marriage becomes difficult or boring. Well, notice he's put in, he said, it's plausible. Well, but right. is it true? Uh, do we have mm -hmm. more evidence than his intuition that it's plausible? And you can sort of spin out lots of these kinds of examples because it's common for theologians to sort of back up the, their claims about things like, you know, well, why did God, you know, give the Israelites a prohibition on pork? You know, well, because it has these knockoff consequences if you avoided pork eating, you know, eating the spine. Um, well, those are empirical claims oftentimes that we can check those out. Do you remember how the liberals gasped when you cited that Swinburne example <laughs> during the seminar? <laughs> I do. I, I do hilarious. remember that. Uh, <laughs> when, when I was presenting this stuff to the seminar, I tried to give some examples from across the sort of range from sort of more progressive to more conservative types yeah. of theologians. And yeah. it was pretty clear that sometimes I got... <gasps> Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. when yeah, one theologian I mentioned before I even said what the theologian said, people were gasping. They're like, "What? Ah. Not that guy?" Like, yeah, easy but you, people. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, like, look, you can agree or disagree with the the thinker or not, but what we're what we're focused on here is like when the normative claims have empirical assumptions or testable empirical hypotheses, right? That's right. Yeah, or they, they, or the, the claim has consequences that are empirically tractable, or, or there's another psychological angle on these. In this case, yeah. normative claims. Well, yeah. so you know, I think that that Swinburne one is interesting. That one's probably on the like, I would guess that one's kind of on the line. That there's probably some evidence for that argument, and there's probably some evidence against that argument, or at least it's complicated. That you know, it might be difficult to suss out sort of in terms of likelihood to commit adultery, what causal power does number of previous sex partners have? And, you know, Party like, to Mary, Mary Clemens did presented some studies on those. Oh, in, is there, the so is there some, can we hear um, the evidence? But I, it actually wasn't, it wasn't about premarital sex. It was about like bad communication was more likely to correlate to adultery and right. in, in yeah, if you're bad communicators, you carry that into the marriage, and then it's more likely to correlate to adultery. And dismissive, like dismissing your partner. Yeah, I mean, the Gottmans, who are the famous couple from University of Washington, sort of some of the most famous couples counseling theorists in the world, would say, you know, it's it's um, contempt. Contempt is sort of like the experience that is most correlated with uh, relationships ending. And you get to contempt through these other sort of slippery items. But another, like maybe a sillier example that I can think of that has less weight to it is like some of the purity culture metaphors and arguments that we were raised with. Like, for instance, the Oreo cookie. So there is, you know, you have an Oreo and you say, who wants to eat this Oreo? And every kid goes, that looks good. Then you have a bunch of people spit on the Oreo. And then you say, now who wants to eat the Oreo? And everyone goes, ew. And, and there is an inherent claim there's a psychological claim in there that is if you've had multiple sexual partners you will not be desirable that is a testable claim as a man i'm gonna go ahead and say that's probably false <laughs> that like of all the things that make a woman sexually desirable to me number of partners i mean it could be on the list it's very low uh, it might account for 2% of variance or something like that. You know, it's not a lot. And there's and, so many things wrong with it. Oh, there's so many <laughs> things. I mean, there's but the I have literally never heard of the Oreo thing. Actually, Oh, you haven't heard like, the Oreo one? No, no, yeah. I have not. The Oreo one's a big one or, you know, and actually like having people spit and then you're activating people's like disgust. disgust. Exactly. So, you know. so it's power. It's a powerful activity though I think quite harmful. It's powerful because of its activation of disgust psychology. But it is actually making an argument, and that's a testable argument. You could you can survey people how sexually alluring do you find this person, give them a bunch of factors that might affect it, 
right? I don't think that the evidence would come out very strong for that one. I'm sorry, I re- used a sex example. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Hey, this is what makes it entertaining for the listeners. Exactly. Justin. I'm glad you did. You made the you made the episode better. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> okay, well, sex sells. Remember, I, I want to get through these four because I do want to sort of get to some some bigger, broader uh, prompts for you guys. So the third one, the third of the four. Um, instances where a theologian, it could be helpful to be aware of the psych science, claims about the effects that religious activities have on people. This one is really interesting to me. So what are we talking about here? The example comes to mind right away because Justin talked about in the seminars, the theologian who was saying, and well, this was common throughout my tradition because I grew up in a very conservative reform tradition that was very anti images of Christ, that it was idolatry, and that no actor should ever play Jesus. And so the example Justin gave, it's that you will focus too much on Christ's humanity rather than his divinity. What the fresh hell. Okay. (laughs) That is the most, that is, that is the most Protestant argument I've ever heard in my life right there. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Justin actually investigated um, investigated this scientifically and empirically, but what'd you find? Um, this was actually from J.I. Packer in uh, right. Knowing uh, God. Of course, he says, of course it was. <laughs> in a similar way, the pathos of the crucifix obscures the glory of Christ, for it hides the fact of his deity, his victory on the cross, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but it conceals his divine strength. It depicts the reality of his pain, but keeps out of sight the reality of his joy and power. And then he goes on to say, images mislead men. Uh, they convey false ideas about God. Well, I'm glad um, women aren't included in that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> women, it's hard however, to, not mislead. It's hard to mislead a woman. It is hard. Uh, much harder. Um, <laughs> women, however, I, are headstrong and, and are very difficult to lead one way or the other. That would be a great little sentence to include in there. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay, this claim, by the way, this claim about the crucifix versus, for instance, the empty tomb or something like that, which is what you see in like early Orthodox iconography, right? That is a that's a less egregious claim than the way that Sari phrased it, that like it will make you focus. I guess. I don't know. Well, I, more on I, human weakness than divine strength. Or glory yeah. Or yeah. yeah. There, there's probably I mean, there's there surely is something to. Which images we choose will have some effects. Like that's interesting. Well, and the, and the, but once again, it's an empirical claim. I mean, right. I'm, I gave <laughs> these examples not because I have strong feelings about them one way or the other, but because they're wonderful examples of a theologian making a claim that's actually empirically tractable. Yeah. And as Sari suggested, when I was a doctoral student, um, I actually ran a, a little study. It's it's sort of embarrassingly underpowered, as we would say today, small sample size and so forth, but did look to see if people who had more interaction with images of God, including pictures of Jesus in worship settings, were more anthropomorphic, more crudely anthropomorphic in their representation of God. Interesting. Um, and there was some evidence that this was true of Protestants, but not of the Catholic participants, as it, which you wouldn't expect. You'd think, well, the Catholics, they're getting even more of it. But uh, it seemed that Protestants if we can generalize from such a small sample, which I, I caution against. I want somebody to go out there and re- replicate the study is what I'm saying. Expand this thing. But it did look like uh, I didn't find any kind of impact on Catholics, but on Protestants. Yeah, they did look slightly more anthropomorphic if they had lots of exposure to these. Yeah. These are empirical questions that are being generated by theology then. Right. And so there's a potential mutual benefit for scientists to engage the uh, these theological kinds of questions, but also for theologians then to take seriously what, what the scientific evidence is generating. We have a class on our website called Brains and Embodiment, and there's a section um, that has a lot to do with rituals, spiritual rituals like singing in groups, praying privately and corporately, meditation, experiences of God in nature, experiences of God through art, which is just getting going. And the correlations between those types of practices and health benefits, virtues and character formation, and social bonding, which of course are not all mutually exclusive benefits. There's so much that you could get into on that topic. And these are things that theologians talk about all the time. Yeah. Zoomed out a little bit from some of those more controlled claims 
uh, or tightly conscripted claims. Just a friend of mine just this last week who had been going through some very difficult things, some trauma, some difficulties in work stuff, said, I've been reconnecting in my relationship with God, and it's really been helping me get through this period. You know, you could you can extrapolate that out. Someone could say, like, yeah, religious involvement is the kind of thing that uh, reduces stress, increases coping, you know, whatever. And sure enough, we actually we find evidence that this is a big part of the this is a big part of my spiritual abuse sort of what are the stakes argument is that uh, spiritual abuse is bad for for reasons, among other reasons, that it robs people of a primary form of healing, coping and thriving. And because there's a lot of evidence that that's what religious involvement does for people. Now, it still could be that there's no God, right? Like, even if there's no God, like this is kind of this is touches on for me, honestly, one of the most like sort of beating centers of it all is that like, even though I don't have certainty about the metaphysical claims of Christianity or whatever, the fact that it works, it works for me anecdotally. And it works for other people in these more careful studies and whatnot is an argument to continue it even when uh, – and, and you could just call that that's a leap of faith. That's just the leap of faith that people make routinely in religions. But that's that's kind of where my brain went with that. OK. So fourth, the fourth and final of these uh, instances where it would be helpful for a theologian to be aware of the best available psych science is – if they are using human intuition as premises in an argument, and as someone with a, a bachelor's of philosophy, I can attest human intuitions are often used in moral arguments and philosophical arguments, um, in theological arguments. Justin, can you give us uh, an example or two? So one example that I, I bring up a little bit comes from uh, Alistair McGrath. And um, the context uh, of his work is he's talking about different models of God as creator. One of the models that he proposes, one way of thinking about God as creator is sort of God as a divine artist. Uh, so he calls it this, the artistic expression model. Hmm. And he proposes that the strength of such a, of a model includes the claim that, and here I'll quote, there is a natural link between the concept of creation as artistic expression and the highly significant concept of beauty. Notice what he says there. There's a natural link between artistic expression and the concept of beauty. Yeah. Well, is that right? We can find out if in other people there is such a so-called natural link. Um, that's one kind of an example. What I have in mind in this general category of are you constructing an argument that uses intuitions as premises? Um, maybe is even more obvious in areas like in the philosophy of religion. So, for instance, Ian Church right now is uh, leading a project on um, experimental philosophy of religion. And it started with a planning project of his on the problem of evil. And so the problem of evil, in short, is if there's a perfectly good, all-powerful and knowing God, then there really shouldn't be all of this evil that we see in the world. Right. Um, there is a lot more evil in the world than is easily accounted for if there is such a God. So there must not be such a God. Uh, of course, I'm being a little bit loose with the argument, but that's the yeah. gist of the argument. But notice that the argument plays on a lot of intuitions about, well, how basically nobody says a perfectly good knowing and powerful God couldn't allow some things that we would find evil, uncomfortable, painful, even. Right. It's um, about egregious evil, basically. Yeah. Just there's often the term gratuitous evil. Gratuitous it seems like it's evil. way yeah. more than you would expect. Well, wait, wait a minute. Then yeah. who would expect, mm -hmm. you know, our, we're supposed to have the intuition that there's too much, but who has that intuition? How much is that intuition conditioned by our culture, our background, our expectations, you know, C.S. Lewis had sort of an argument right back to this kind of thing, which is if you expect the world to be kind of, I'm paraphrasing, if you expect the world to be a club med vacation, you're going to be disappointed. But if you expect that it's going to be a training ground, uh, that's going to be a little rough, but you're going to come out better in the end. Well, then you might be pleasantly surprised. 
And he said that as a guy who had been a World War I soldier and saw some yeah. pretty horrible stuff. But notice everybody's just sort of tapping intuitions here yeah. to construct what amounts to a theological or philosophical kind of argument. And so this area of experimental philosophy in the domain of philosophy has been launched to sort of check out those intuitions, to test using very psych science kinds of methods, whether those intuitions... Um, first of all, are, are generalizable or are they just philosophers' intuitions? Do they inter, interact importantly in sort of some suspicious or promising ways with someone's background, education, personal history, cultural environment, linguistics, you know, economic situation, whatever it is? And you can easy, see how this could be extended to philosoph or sorry, theological kinds of arguments as well. And that's what Ian Church is, is moving towards in his project. One of the enduring sort of topics I want to investigate, but I haven't really made any efforts to do it yet is sort of the link between people's personality types and or their sort of moral foundations that they tend to events via something like Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory. And you can take these tests like yourmorals.org. You can take their, their test for free, how those correlate with uh, certain theological claims or anti-theological, you know, sort of atheistic claims, like the types of claims that people find convincing. And should we be controlling for our own personality and our moral intuitions if we are going to be making claims that ostensibly are universally applied, that apply to other people with other intuitions? And then you might want to say, well, given that variety, how highly should I hold my own intuitions? Like I should act on them. I should definitely act on my own conscience. I think that's an easier argument to make than also society should act on my conscience. You know, like that's that you'd need a stronger argument, more evidence for something like that. You need to find well, you have to find like harm that this is doing objectively in a society wide way. It's not a good enough thing to say you all need to act based on my intuitions that, you know, we, we tend to not uh, accept those kinds of that kind of reasoning. I think a lot of the theosite stuff comes down to, like, how do we love our neighbor better? And a lot of times the the assumptions we have about what how, <laughs> what's loving and what's good for human thriving are not correct. And the science can help clarify that. And, and if, you know, Christ calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, sometimes our assumptions about <laughs> what we think is best are not best. And that's a big part of it. And then something else I wanted to add to what you're saying, Dan, is I'm sure some people might be having these little flags come up is because the if you're a theologian or if you're just a Christian and you're doing this sort of research or trying to come up with what you think about an issue, you're having the conversation, you have multiple authorities. <laughs> Obviously, authority is one of Height's <laughs> categories, but a, a lot of Christians have like the, you know, you're having the conversation um, with a tradition, with the community, with history, with a sacred text, you know, and, and that's where some of the tension lies because a lot of times people think, sometimes they think their intuitions are just straight out of the Bible. Those intuitions, those uh, impulses, um, predilections that not only we hold, but everybody around us holds, we tend to think, well, these are unproblematic and they must universalized. And if we are not careful about that and we use those as a basis for telling other people what they ought to think and do, yeah, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. In some ways, that's what the encouragement is for each of these questions is, well, just check it out. Yeah. I'm not saying that these theological claims are wrong. They could end up right. And in the, the point of the science is not to disrupt the theological progress. That's what, not what we're trying to encourage. We're trying to encourage thinking of especially psychological science as uh, a, a tool that theologians and theological thinkers can use to fortify and strengthen their arguments and, and sharpen them up. You know, get rid of the stuff that actually is not well supported and yeah. garner better support for the stuff that, you know, has good support out there. So why not bring those tools to bear when it's appropriate? And it won't yeah. always be appropriate, but more often than I think theologians recognize. I want to call out the Facebook group, which is for patrons of this show. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes. And patrons get access to the Facebook group. 
And currently, there are some interesting conversations going on just as I record this about uh, the Baby Boomer deconstruction episode with Joe Bishop, a couple threads going there. Someone's asking about being in a season of not reading the Bible, and there are a lot of comments there. There have been recent um, conversations about various resources uh, for personal life, for parenting. It's just a cool community. It's a really great place um, to be able to interact with a handful, hundreds of other people who are trying to take Christianity in the modern world seriously. Some of them not Christians anymore, but still engaged in these meaningful conversations. Patrons also get at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as unedited or lightly edited, I should say, longer form episodes um, for some of the ones that get shortened for the main feed. I can't tell right now as I'm looking at this one, Josh hasn't edited it yet as I'm recording this. I don't know if this is going to have a longer version or not, but sometimes they do. And if so, those are available for patrons on the patron feed. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month. Thank you for considering it. Back to my conversation with Sari and Justin. Okay, so... Sari, you were just kind of gesturing at this next question about, you know, people are engaging with a sacred text, uh, with a tradition that is very important to them. And my question to you guys is, what do theologians tend to worry about when it comes to engaging the sciences? Like, what hesitations have you guys encountered? Obviously, the people who end up coming are agreeing to come, so they are not as hesitant as maybe some other people. But I, I know you've got to have had some conversations with people about the types of stuff that makes them a little worried. I wanted to say one more thing that's not quite answering your question, but will get us to an answer. And then I'll give Justin a chance to really think about his answer. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> but I was saying yeah. a, fifth, a fifth way we see people doing this like theopsych stuff is by coming up with new and better analogies for theological concepts from the psychological science. Oh, cool. And that's different than kind of one through four, like we just went through. But like Natalia Marandiuk is a liberal theologian, a constructive theologian, who's using models of attachment theory to flesh mm. out her understanding of salvation. Right. Crispin Mayfield is also just released yeah, a yeah, book yeah. attached to God. Totally. Oh, right? yeah. Yes, yeah. Totally. Shout out Along to him. Along those same lines, um, yeah. I think one of the things that was most eye-opening for me was just how broad and varied the way theologians are engaging the psychological science is and what they're willing to do or where they're willing to start from is very diverse um, and interesting. And it yeah. really kind of depends on what area of theology, not just where they are in the tradition, but also what kind of theology they're doing or they're interested in. Uh, if they're doing more analytic theology, um, if they're doing more like um, ministry, like practical theology, you know, like Joanna Leidenhog talking about neurotypical f folks versus neuroatypical folks and their experiences of worship and, and stuff yeah. like that, just real practical everyday yeah. experience of the Christian. And so, yeah, in terms of resistance, there's been some of that. <laughs> Let's hear about it, talk Justin. about it? <laughs> Uh, I think Sari's right that uh, in, if there are broad patterns, those on the sort of practical, pastoral kind of side, children's edu religious education, working on these kinds of topics, there's a lot more. Oh, yeah, I can take these things on board because in some ways it feels like, oh, what the science is doing there is showing us how to do what we want to do how to mm. better accomplish it's it's better almost tools, like the, right yeah exactly better tools for just execution but science isn't getting in the way and telling us what we ought to do or what we ought to think and i think it, that's where it's in those domains where wait wait a minute you're going to make me rethink uh, divine revelation or oh you're going to make me rethink the two natures of christ or you're going to make me rethink what it means for humans to be created in god's image i think it's those domains where there may be a little bit more initial kind of, I don't know, defensiveness in engaging the sciences, uh, especially because, you know, scientists have 
to a certain extent earned, sometimes their fault, sometimes not their fault, but this reputation of being kind of, kind of smug and um, having yeah. all the answers. And, you know, that doesn't play nice with anybody if you come on strong acting like, oh, no, we've got it all together and just sit down, you theologians, and we'll tell you how the world really works. Yeah, that's going to put people on their heels. So, <laughs> Can I get a little meta there and see if you guys have thoughts about this? Isn't it the case that scientists are the priests of our era and the priests of the previous era were the people writing the theology, especially in like Europe, let's say in the Middle Ages, pre pre scientific revolution, you know, the the real power brokers were the kings and the church. And that has been changed now. And now when society has its biggest questions, it doesn't turn to the theologians anymore or the church. It, it turns to, broadly speaking, the scientists. I don't know if that's going too far or if I'm painting with too broad of a brush, but I wonder if there is a sort of element there of a reversal of roles uh, and and an understandable desire to yeah. have theology be the queen of the sciences as it once was sort of uni- more universally regarded. My gut says that like that kind of annoys theologians, but also there's not agreement amongst theologians nowadays about what they're actually doing or what their like project is. So it's hard to it's hard to kind of like, you know, present a counter like, oh, but we are actually, <laughs> you know, we, we're dealing with things like meaning and, you know, g- God and all these these. Well, I mean, psychologists are dealing with meaning, right? I mean, it's like. They're not even really the main people dealing with meaning anymore, uh, not at least in terms of the way that people are listening to. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's not easy to draw an easy dichotomy that somehow this, you know, the scientists are the new priests. I think most most scientists are very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. They recognize how narrow their expertise is, how their findings are provisional. Um, they're partial. They're probabilistic. They're they work in this tiny little space, given all of these extra, you know, qualifications, and they're not ready to pronounce on sort of the broad stuff. But there have been philosophers and uh, politicians, frankly, and other kinds of sort of publicizers of of the sciences who, well, they've got a they've got an anti-religious agenda. They do. Yeah. And they are wanting to to put science with this capital S and an exclamation point in the place. Bill Maher. And that's not something that, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, and this is not something most scientists are at all comfortable with because they know science doesn't do that. It's not its job. Um, and so it's going to fail and it's going to end up embarrassing scientists and the scientific enterprise. And we've seen that, frankly, over the last couple of years where science has been weaponized in many respects by, you know, all kinds of political orientations. And the net result is nobody knows what it is anymore. And, oh. Or it plays into people's worst fears. Science equals whoever's in power, right. you know, will club us with it, um, whoever the us is. I do think now from theology's perspective, what we've seen is not just that science, you know, the sciences have claimed some of the authority of theology, but the the task of the theologian as the person who casts a broad vision, an intellectual view of what you know, life, the universe, and everything means uh, what a good life and a life well-lived looks like, especially in relationship to God, what our society should look like. You know, that that used to be the job of theology, but the, that kind of normative, broad, synthetic vision has been grabbed by all of these other disciplines in the academy. And so now right. literary scholars do it. Artists do it. Historians do it psychologists do it. You know, it. I, I honestly kind of want to redo what I said about scientists and say, I'll go a little more narrow and say, at least for 50 to 60% of the United States population, maybe not everybody on the right, but therapists are the new pastors. That like, that's maybe a little, little more controlled claim than scientists are the mm. new priests. But what's interesting is that Therapists do have to have some kind of a moral, uh, human thriving type of a framework, and it does tend to come from, you know, philosophy or previous religious thought. I mean, their existential therapy comes from 
the existential philosophers, but there's some Kierkegaard in there. There's some Christian stuff still lingering in there, even though some of them will claim that the life is meaningless. These theories of thriving are inherent in all of these therapeutic modalities. And so you're right. It's, it's, it's moved out away from the theologian. It's sort of been, uh, outsourced, right? Well, or if you like, appropriated. appropriated I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> hey, I, I, this is where the. No, well, no, I think this you're, is you're, where you're a psychologist too, so it's fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, in speaking as somebody who spent some time uh, in a clinical faculty and even got to lead it for a little while, I mean, it's yeah. this is an area where theologians are right to be a little bit indignant um, at moments where. Hmm. Because clinical psychologists, even developmental psychologists, as you say, all of these psychologists, therapists, and so forth, who are trying to cast a vision for what wellness or flourishing or thriving looks like, well, yeah. where are they getting where are they getting that normative foundation to make those kinds of claims? You're right; they're drawing from some kind of philosophies out there. They're not doing it qua scientists. They're just not right. So they are going beyond the data in many respects, but trying to use the authority of being sort of scientist practitioners or whatever it is to sort of have the authority of science. And at the same time, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They're making normative claims that are often under supported by, well, anything, frankly, because unlike say philosophers and theologians who have been forced to examine their foundations, a lot of psychologists have not. And so they just sneak them in the back door and then tell you, trust me, I'm an expert. Well, I don't trust you just because you say, trust me. And I don't trust you just because, you know, you're part of the American Psychological Association. Uh, No, that's not good enough. I wonder what you think about this. So my sense of how that is sort of taped together and and solved in a soft sense is that what we're all going to agree upon is a is like the basics of secular humanism that, you know, we want we want to like not do harm. We want to uh, increase at least the subjective well-being of our it's it's honestly like a it's a little bit of a shrinking of the goal. Um, and I think it's because of a discomfort with larger sort of goals and larger claims and maybe and maybe that's necessary because of uh, the plurality of competing larger views and larger claims maybe a future world that is better for the psychological landscape is one where a clinician will just tell you where they're coming from in that sense but then they're going to all use kind of similar tools because the tools kind of tend to work you know like i'm i'm thinking about something like unconditional positive regard for your client, which is something that almost every therapeutic modality today uses. Uh, There's a few old school psychoanalytic folks who don't do that, but almost everybody else uses it. You know, what was Rogers thinking philosophically when he came up with it? I don't know. I mean, I kind of know, but I don't really care because it works. Like it just, it, it works when you do it. It, it helps people change. And it's been shown across modalities to do that with pretty rigorous study. Now, what are the moral and or theological or spiritual underpinnings of treating them that way? That is as wide as the sea. But so I think it's more of like a what the APA and, and the and the just in general the the profession has done. From my perspective, is it's narrowed its goals and said, well, we're going to do this. And we all pretty much agree that we don't want our clients killing themselves. And we all agree that we don't want them abusing other people and we want them. But then you do get into like living your best life. What does it mean to be actualized now in the positive psychology realm is maybe where you get more divergence. But in terms of treating symptoms and helping people with depression and anxiety and all of that, everyone's just like, well, we're just going to agree that we want less depression and less anxiety, you know, and and that's 90 percent of what we do in our sessions with our clients, but there is still that 10% and that's where it gets interesting to me. And I will probably end up doing some work with some of the people that you've worked with uh, in the future around that stuff. Cause I find it so fascinating. No, I think you're right. That is probably it's there's, but what you're describing is sort of a least common denomination kind it of is. Appro- uh, denominator mm-hmm. approach to this. And that'll take you a long way, but notice 
there's still assumptions about, well, where do we want to take clients to? Mm -hmm. That's sort of baked in and oftentimes not really carefully inspected. And even things like, I think, you know, use the example of depression and anxiety. Yeah, I think in general, as sort of the, as you say, the 90%, we want less anxiety and depression for sure. But what if it turns out that in some important cases, actually a little bit of anxiety helps signal to you that you're doing something wrong with your life, that you are on a bad pathway right. that needs adjusted. Well, then the anxiety, actually, we don't want it to go away. We want mm -hmm. it to be resolved in the right way. Yep by these behavioral and or cognitive kinds of changes. Well, changes to what? Who gets to decide that? Yeah. Now, most, most I think, good therapists recognize they don't get to dictate that. They need, right. that's a dialogue, that's an engagement with this particular person. But there is increasingly confusion, I think, around for the individual client and the rest of us, for society, of how to answer those questions. You're going to put it on me, old therapist? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm yep. lost here. I don't know what the direction purpose of my life is. I don't know what it means to live a flourishing life anymore. Mm -hmm. You tell me to be actualized or something like that. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. Right. A lot of us, my generation anyway, we see that, especially, you know, like uh, millennials, everything is about authenticity. And you're like, yeah, but what if your authentic self is kind of a but? Well, you know, I don't want the best version of I don't want you to be right. the authentic butt yeah. that you could be. You can do better than that. Uh -huh. Now, but who am I to tell you what that better is? Well, now we're getting into some interesting territory, right? But that's where yeah. theologians really do have a place to play is to work out what are these possible lifestyles, worldviews, or sometimes it's called life ways that live to a flourishing life. How do we bring in the theological perspectives with the best tools of the sciences so that at least people who say, yeah, I'm attracted to that version have a more complete package they can deal with instead of it being just a random buffet? Well, so this episode is called When Theology Needs Psychology. And let's kind of end here, which is what we're talking about now. What are times when psychology needs theology or needs moral philosophy or, you know, it needs something that deals in these higher questions to inform it? You know, I think about like, so I really like acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the things I like about it is that there is this part of values discovery. So you are you are figuring out in your own story what values are important to you so that, you know, it's that part you're talking about how the therapist. Yeah, it's true. We shouldn't delineate it. You do need to discover it for yourself. But that is a practical issue. The reason you need to discover it for yourself is that that's how you will be motivated to do the things you need to do to become the kind of person you want to become. But there is still a question behind. Why do you want the things that you want? And for instance, one question I have for all psychologists, therapists, whatever in this world is like, just just take, for instance, uh, American capitalist consumption, consumer culture. Well, most of us want a whole bunch of shit we don't need. And, you know, will that show up in that values discovery process? For some people, maybe not. Maybe they're, they realize that their truest values aren't being met by uh, having a Mercedes and uh, a, a very thin girlfriend or something by their side. But what about for people for whom that is what they want at the moment? Then are they moving towards, you know, so like, how do we critique something like consumerist capitalism? Sari, let's get you. Yeah. In. Do you really you need nine guitars? I mean, really? Okay. Do that you? now. You know, this is something. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, now you're digging at me. He's, Justin, well, is well. Justin is referring to the guitars that are currently in view in the uh, <laughs> camera in my studio. They are for work or they used to be for work anyway. Uh, Sari? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just striking very personal here because my partner, Steve, and I have been talking a lot about this very thing, like discovering our values and articulating them. And, you know, when you think about where do you want to be in a year? Where do you want to be in five years, 10 years, et cetera? And actually, our at Blueprint, our associate, Rebecca Dorsey, is a professional coach. And so she has always, she's taught me a lot about how to ask questions better. Yeah. So I used that in a conversation with Steve-O this week when we we're talking about something and saying, you, you said it, you said, why do you want those things? And when you say, why do you want those things? You get, start to justify it. You start to kind of 
the your inner lawyer, right? Your I have to justify myself. I have to yes. justify, and you're like, okay, what are some? And they feel not very true, you know. And we found when we we're having this conversation that if I phrased it like a what question, like Rebecca taught me, I say, what appeals to you about having that thing? And I found that in the conversation we had this week, we found that mo- much more honest answers were coming that way. You get mm. kind of more of an experiential answer, like you imagine having the thing. And you imagine how it makes you feel about yourself. And I don't know, you just get like a more deeper, honor, honest answer. You know, you get to know yourself better. It kind of reveals to yourself like what you might even do a corrective. You're like, well, oh, I see now, like you were talking about the nice car and the girlfriend. When I say what appeals to me about that, well, oh. People will respect me. Yeah, oh. exactly. Oh, okay, so what so you really you want not is respect. Respected. Exactly. Okay, good. Great. Follow that clue. Uh-huh. We have a we have a question in multiple modalities also uses. It's called the miracle question. And the and it goes like this. So suppose you woke up tomorrow and a miracle had happened and the biggest stuff that you've been dealing with has been solved. How would you how would you know? What would you notice that you went, "Oh, this had changed." So again, it's not what would it be? What's the miracle solution? It's how would you know? And then that is like, oh, so I would, well, first of all, I would wake up without the pit of anxiety in my stomach. Okay. And when you get to those questions, it's really easy to see how theology comes in because you could start, you could really start to imagine, does God's love help me meet that need? And would that change what I desire in my life and how I desire to live my life? Yeah. I feel like it makes yeah. it, when you get to that level, talking about things about God, kind of starts to just happen very easily. Yeah. Something like, you know, you could say, oh, well, I would, I would know that something had changed because like, I would feel like I'm worthy again. I would wake up Mm. feeling not worthless. And then you might, if that person is religious, you might go, when do you feel most full of worth? And they might Mm -hmm. go, when I'm praying. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's, what's been getting in the way of praying recently? You you just, Mm. you just follow the clues, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I do like that. I like uh, uh, Rebecca's, you know, moving mm-hmm. from the why to the what, you mm-hmm. know, and like getting tangible things and then following that. This is like why I really like doing therapy. I love the my favorite thing is the sort of investigative detective work, the collaborative detective work. Yeah. One sort of big takeaway from the Theopsych project that we discovered is uh, there's now a growing community of theologians who are recognizing that psychological science is uh, really helpful for their theological projects. They help. Cool. This is a tool they can put in their belt. They're very enthusiastic about it, but they often need help. They need like their their scientist support animal to uh, sort of <laughs> or guide to help them navigate these literatures, yeah. the assumptions, the theories, point them to the good, help them separate the sort of the wheat from the chaff in right. this area. But it's actually hard to find scientists who to play that role. And so that's something that we're starting to really pivot to is how do we get scientists now especially psychological and other human sciences, enthusiastic about um, contributing to theology as collaborators, as consultants, as resources. There's honestly probably a handful who listen to this show, uh, right? You have okay, a yeah. number of psychologists yeah. listening now, I huh? do. If you, if you think <laughs> that you might be willing to be one such support animal, uh, as, as you so uh, <laughs> graciously Hit put me it, up. <laughs> uh, what, what, how should, how should these, uh, psych scientists find you guys? Blueprint, uh, 1543.com org. Yeah. All our contact info is on the website. You can easily is it, find that. Is it org us. or it is, com? it is org. org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you are one of those scientists and you think, you know what, I, it'd be cool to do some co-authored stuff with a theologian. That sounds fun. Yeah. And to encourage such scientists, you know, uh, we've been speaking to some recently on some listening tours and we're hearing things like uh, our friend Miguel Farias, who is a cognitive and neuroscience guy um, in the UK. You know, he he told us like 80 percent of his ideas come from theology. He 
he said. So he just finds that engaging with theological reflections is just a wellspring of interesting research ideas and really inspiring. And he's not alone in that. I think he's right about that. Theology represents uh, a whole lot of careful thought over thousands of years about some of life's biggest questions. And so we shouldn't be surprised as psych scientists that they have at least some really interesting hypotheses that are worth exploring. Well, let me motivate that. I mean, ACT, A-C-T, Stephen Hayes, very clear about the role of Buddhism in the development of mindfulness theories, but also specifically acceptance and commitment therapy, right? Like these wisdom traditions contain wisdom, (laughs) <laughs> like the the stuff that makes it what? thousands can you believe it the stuff that's made it thousands of years and stuck within yeah. the tradition is like more likely to be true than other things all things being equal and might prove yeah really fruitful uh for ideas and springboards and whatnot makes sense yeah yep and for folks who aren't psychologists and this isn't their thing, though there's a primer at theosec.com and there's also a list of classes that we host on our website. So particularly the positive psychology course, we have a course called Positive Psychology for Theology. And you'll recognize the names of the, the psychologists in that course from Dan's podcast if you've been listening for a while, especially Pam King. So we have a unit on human thriving and she demonstrates a lot of different theories of human thriving and her own and she has a great book called The Reciprocating Self. And and so if you want to, if just you're a normal person and you're curious about these things, that's a really cool class that has a ton of resources. Oh, Pam is the best. Well, uh, in the show notes, I do have links to theopsych.com, Crispin Mayfield's book, Attached to God, and blueprint1543.org. Sari and Justin, thank you guys so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks for having us. 